Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Thank you, sir. We continue on hour number two here on your basic Wednesday edition of Lifeline. You know, it's interesting when you look at a nation that has undergone such enormous um, economic renaissance as communist China has. Um, It's truly amazing. Now, certainly that's largely, if not entirely, due to the shift in manufacturing. Big corporations decided to move offshore to territories where resources, regulations were a little bit uh, different, and certainly the prices. China has benefited enormously. But for all the vast wealth in communist China, sadly, it does not translate into vast improvements in elder care or social welfare. And there is an interesting connection between not only a disproportionate um, population level in communist China because of the uh, the cruel one-child policy that lasted for the better part of two generations, but, uh, but also, too, um, because, quite frankly, as much as there has been tremendous wealth increased in China. Um, along with that, the sense of valuing of core things that had been traditional in Chinese society, such as um, family, um, is no longer what it was once, um, particularly now that there's been more than 70 years of communist oppression there. Joining me with some insights as to what's happening, particularly to the hardest hit, China's aging population, is Reggie Littlejohn. Reggie, of course, is founder and president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers. Reggie, always great to have you with us. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me back, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, typically when we talk, we have gotten together down through the years and talked about our our mutual interest in China and mutual concern for the impact of forced abortions in China, certainly the cruel one-child policy that had many families engaging in abortion for pure sex selection or because they were forced to by the state. But there's another growing issue that's sort of an outgrowth of that that's not capturing much headlines. And that's the issue that China right now, as the population continues to grow older, is also becoming an increasingly vulnerable population. And, uh, and sadly, a lot of that vulnerability, um, for a variety of reasons that I hope you'll help, help us better understand, um, is at tremendous risk to the point where many are feeling as if the only way is the way out by suicide. What's going on? Oh, thank you so much for asking, Craig. And you're right. It's just, it, this is, everybody talked about the babies that were aborted under the one-child policy, and, and that, was, that, was, that was huge, 400 million lives prevented. And by the way, that coercion has not ended with the two-child policy, because even under the two-child policy, third children are still um, illegal, and it's illegal to be um, 
to be pregnant as a single mom. Those babies can be forcibly aborted as well. But that's been getting a, a lot of publicity. What has not been getting publicity, as you pointed out, is what I call the invisible victims of the one-child policy, which are the elderly in China, especially elderly widows. So, and as you mentioned, under the traditional Chinese culture, um, the Chinese used to really uh, venerate the elderly. They had large families, and in the rural areas, which is where my organization has a network, what would happen is that there would be a couple who would have a large family, and then and then all the kids would have a lot of kids or farmers, and the whole family would get together to support the original elderly couple when they were not able to support themselves anymore. And all of that has completely changed because the one-child policy has decimated the family structure in China. So now you get a situation where you'll have a couple, a married couple, um, and, and, and they are responsible for supporting their aging parents. So that's four parents for the original couple. And eight grandparents plus themselves plus their one child or their two children. And they just can't manage it economically. And so what's happening is that elderly people are just getting left behind with no resources. Um, and also people have moved from the countryside to the city so they don't even see their kids. And so a lot of them are committing suicide. Senior suicide in China has skyrocketed 500% in the last 20 years, along with the one-child policy. Wow. That's pretty significant. And, of course, to, to put this into context, you know, in the United States, in most Western developed nations, um, we have a variety of, we'll refer to them as, as safety nets, um, programs like Social Security here in the United States, uh, Medicare. Uh, if you are indigent and under retirement age, then you have things like uh, social welfare programs, Medicaid, things of this sort. We We try to um, provide some safety net for the more vulnerable um, in our communities to make sure that if they are on economic straits or as they grow older, that they're not left entirely destitute. That was the entire plan behind the 1934 Social Security Act, was to make sure that elderly people ended up, you know, didn't wind up in the so-called poorhouse. There are many countries that have programs like this uh, to varying degrees of efficiency. Unfortunately, China is not one of them. And then when you couple the lack of social welfare nets with the enormity of the population there, as um, Reggie points out, my goodness, you've seen this major spike in the older population, um, that vulnerable percentage, 35%. And that will equal some half billion people, 500 million people, by the year 2050, which is not that far away. And so with the the lack of social welfare and safety nets, um, the most vulnerable population in the country is now forced with nowhere to turn. Historically, the answer was have a lot of kids. So you run a family farm, you have six, seven, eight, ten, twelve kids – 
The kids help run the family farm, and the kids help share the burden of caring for mom and dad in their later years. So all the kids are helping to cooperate and continuing to running the family farm or have their own independent means of income, but they're there to share the burden. Well, when now the Communist Party, for low these two generations, 30 years, uh, 40 years, have said no to more than one child, that recently has changed, as Reggie points out, but not by much, that sort of substitute safety net has now been withdrawn, and they are beginning to reap the sad consequences of it all. We're going to get a little deeper in all of this and, uh, in particular, talk about why China today has the highest female suicide rate of any nation in the world per capita. Scary. Reggie, <coughs> pardon me, Reggie Littlejohn, my guest, founder and president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers. Information, by the way, about what we're discussing today, available on the web at womensrightswithoutfrontiers.org. That's womensrightswithoutfrontiers.org. 616, an update on traffic now from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the conversation. Reggie Littlejohn with us today, founder and president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers. Information again on the web at womensrightswithoutfrontiers.org. We are talking about the potentially debilitating impact of the controversial one-child, now two-child policy, though uh, the increase really has not made any difference um, in the nation socially or um, certainly from a cultural standpoint. This uh, one-child policy, um, almost 40 years in place, has had some unintended consequences, I think, uh, that may potentially create a huge burden on the aging Chinese population that's most vulnerable. And, of course, along with that, Reggie, um, it, it seems to be kind of square in the so-called crosshairs of communism here, and that is its most vulnerable population. You've got such an enormous number of widows that don't have the social service net to fall on or rely on like we do here in the United States and don't have the family to rely on. And many of them, I suppose, if they're facing um, things like debilitating disease or illness, if they don't have the resources, and most of them don't, uh, they're making some pretty difficult and very disappointing choices, aren't they? Well, yes, it's it's absolutely heartbreaking. And in one of the reports that I read, uh, the person, uh, the researcher, who is a Chinese national, uh, was saying that what was so alarming to them was not only the spike in senior suicide, but the way that it was being normalized as an accepted or even an honorable way to go. Now, one of the things that we do, a very important program that we have, is called our Save a Widow campaign in China, where we are actively saving widows from destitution. And one of the widows that is, that is in our program, uh, she had the following experience, where, uh, where her, her husband was still alive, but he was sick. And as I mentioned, there's no socialized medicine in China. You would think that in this socialist, communist country that they would have socialized medicine. They do not. So, so when somebody gets sick, like typically, well, in, in this family, the husband got sick, so the wife borrowed money from everybody that she could to try to pay for her husband's illness. 
And during this process, their daughter-in-law came and yelled at them and actually went around telling the neighbors, why don't, why don't they just let him die? It, it would be so much easier on the family, and, and he's going to turn us into homeless people with all these medical expenses. And then she brought up the example of a woman in their community who, when she discovered that she had breast cancer, she hung herself on the tree in the backyard of their home to save her family the medical expenses. And this was considered to be a noble act. So it, it, it's a whole... It's a whole different attitude from the veneration of the elderly that China has always had traditionally. Wow. And, and you know, uh, sadly, this is also not only an outgrowth of the devastating impact of the one-child policy, but let's face it, they've created a godless environment there. Um, and so the, the sense of, of any other mores that could step in and say, hey, wait a minute here. Uh, honorable. Wait a minute. What about honor for family? What about honor for life? Sadly, that's on an increasing basis for multiple generations now, a missing part of the dynamic. Well, that's that's exactly right. Because, you know, for example, in the United States and, and in the West, you know, our, our government was, was founded by people with who are religious believers, who, who have a belief in, in a God who gave us inalienable rights who everybody is, we are, each one of us created by God in his image and have eternal and infinite value. So, and, and, and also the government is supposed to be for the people. In China, China, the Chinese Communist Party took over, okay, they're not elected, and they are officially atheistic, and so what that means is that they believe that this life is all there is, uh, that, and that people are, are, are like automatons, and what matters is what can you produce for society so that if a person like a widow has already worked the fields for, for 50 years and already raised her family and is just now sick and in need, she is, she is a burden, she is expendable. And so, you know, and, and, and that attitude of the government, which also, as you know, it, it, um, is reflected in the forced abortion of hundreds of millions of people. Um, that attitude is, it has trickled down into the society as a whole where people view the elderly or anyone who's not producing economically or otherwise as simply a burden and that they just wish that they would not have to shoulder this burden. Reggie, you made mention of the Save a Widow campaign. Tell us a bit more about that. Well, okay, so we've had a Save a Girl campaign where we've been Saving baby girls from sex-selective abortion, where women are getting pressured um, by their husbands and in-laws to abort baby girls that they want, and in the same area, we we realized we noticed these very, very destitute, abandoned, miserable widows. And you know, I don't know if you were able to actually watch the video um, about the, uh, the widows, but it has images of the actual widows that we're saving, and they, they have a level of misery that you that you, is almost unimaginable by in the West. But what we do is we basically, we go to their door, okay, so we've got this network on the ground inside of China, and we say to them, you know, you, we understand that you need help, and we're here to help you. And the widows, a lot of them, because they've lived through so much hell under communism, they view that often with skepticism. It's like, what do you want in return for this? And we just tell them what we want in return is for you to know that you're loved and 
and we want you to eat every day. And so we give them um, through the donations, through donations that people make, we are able to give them $25 a month, which is you know, a fair amount of money in the Chinese countryside to help them eat. And also, um, we have a field worker that visits them every month and, and, and checks in on them, makes sure that they're okay, et cetera. Um, and so these women are just unbelievably grateful for this. I mean, one of the widows said that she thinks that uh, we, that that she says to the field worker, I believe that you are an angel sent by God in his mercy. And a lot of them, uh, our field workers are, are actually passionate Christians and uh, have no uh, hesitation to tell people about Jesus. And a lot of these women are coming to faith, uh, you know, because, because what they say is, who is this Jesus that would cause people on the other side of the world to care about me when my own family doesn't? Wow. So not only um, help in the time of greatest need, but also a tremendous uh, outpouring of opportunity at, at um, um, sharing faith and, and reaching them for Christ. If folks want to get more information about um, Operation Save a Widow campaign, where can they get more details? Well, just go onto my website, so that's womensrightswithoutfrontiers.org. That's womensrightswithoutfrontiers.org, and I apologize for the long name. Um, but anyway, and then on the right-hand side, you'll see two red buttons. One says Save a Girl, one says Save a Widow. If you click on the Save a Widow, you'll find out more about how you can help. All right, so again, folks can simply go to womensrightswithoutfrontiers.org. That's womensrightswithoutfrontiers.org, and uh, look for the Save a Widow campaign. You can click on that icon. There's a video that Reggie made reference to a moment ago that I think you'll also find quite compelling. And uh, this is is more than just informational, certainly, but I think an opportunity to meet a very dire need and at the same token to to encourage and to... uh, uh, share the good news with those in this most vulnerable position, the growing aging population in China. Our thanks to Reggie Littlejohn, founder and president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. 6.30 exactly. Time now for a look at traffic from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. For those who have loved ones currently in the hospital, who have perhaps lost a loved one, it raises many of the why God questions. Why does God allow things to happen like this? And when we're in these kinds of times, whether we're talking about the tragedy of what unfolded yesterday in Boston, to the loss of a child, to maybe just the day-to-day challenges that we face in life, oftentimes we we feel as if we're kind of groping about, and we're we're wondering in the middle of the darkness of our experience, how do we find God? Coincidentally, a new title of a book called called Finding God in the Dark, and it's co-written by my next guest, Ted Gluck. Ted, of course, has been on the program previously. We talked to him uh, some months ago regarding his best-selling book, Dallas and the Spitfire. Back again to join us today, and Ted, is always great to have you on the show. Hey, Craig, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Boy, the timing of our conversation today in the wake of the tragedy of Boston yesterday, again, it just touches on so many levels emotionally and, and spiritually. 
kind of give me your overall sense, um, particularly in the spirit in which uh, you wrote this book along with Ronnie Martin. Um, we're in these moments, be it the tragedy of yesterday to simply maybe losing a job, losing a loved one. We grapple with this sense of where God, why God? Yeah, we really do. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head. These are these are existential questions. You know, these are questions that that strike to the core of our existence, and um, they really strike to the core of how it is that we think about God. And, um, you know, as, as I prepared for the show tonight, I, I knew you were going to ask me about this, and I was, I was talking it over and, and praying about it with my wife, and I was reminded of the verse in First Thessalonians that says, you know, as Christians, we don't grieve like those who have no hope, and, you know, but we still grieve, you know, and, and whether you're intimately involved in a situation like this, or, or whether you're just kind of observing it from the outside. I mean, you're grieved, and I'm reminded of the, the doctrine of total human depravity, you know, the idea that, that we're all sinners in this world with sick hearts, and that there's no hope for us, and there's, there's nothing good apart from Christ. And I think, you know, what, what you take from this event, I mean, you watch the media and you hear things like, you know, we're going to do everything we can, and, you know, there's all kinds of kind of governmental-slash-military finagling going on. And, and on one hand, you, you root for that, and you're, you're hopeful that something will be done. But, you know, as Christians, we know that um, apart from the cross and apart from Christ, you know, there's really there's not a good answer. You know, there's not a great hopeful thing that, that Obama or anyone else can say to people to really make them feel better. So, you know, I think for us— Maybe the takeaway is an opportunity to, to, to recognize the sin in our own hearts. And, you know, much of my book deals with that, you know, this idea that, you know, it wasn't until I really humbled myself and threw myself at the foot of the cross that I had any joy and any peace in this life. And I think we were reminded that we don't find our joy and peace in circumstances or situations. You know, it, it isn't God's job to, to make everything perfect for us. Um, uh, but he does find us, he does seek us out, and he does give us the opportunity to, to humble ourselves and, and find joy and peace in him. You know, what you say, I know, even with my listeners eavesdropping on this conversation right now, we, we, we resonate with what you say. We, we certainly readily give a mental assent to your observations. And yet oftentimes, isn't there that disconnect that we experience, meaning that we understand, for example, if we want to just kind of uh, coldly in a very calculated manner dissect what transpired yesterday, it is, you know, man's depravity, it is separation of God, from God by, by sin, it is our inclination to do wrong and evil and the influence of the enemy in our lives. We understand all of that, and we can certainly, in many ways, kind of pigeonhole or categorize the pain of yesterday into those categories. We give complete, total mental assent to those realities. And yet there's this disconnect where emotionally, though, we're still saying, but wait a minute, God. I mean, aren't you supposed to come in and kind of, you know, save the day? Uh, We look at this and say, well, you know, of all the people that died yesterday, uh, three all told, why did one of them have to be an eight-year-old boy? And suddenly now we're kind of emotionally uh, and spiritually wrestling with God over these things. Yeah, we are, you know, and I, I, I fully agree. And I think, you know, for those of us who, who grew up Christian or grew up in evangelical homes like I did, I mean, I think I, I spent a lot of years just intellectually assenting to things and not really feeling or experiencing them. And there's this, this strange tension in the Church where, you know, you're, you're clinging to truth, and you have biblical truth, but yet you, you still want to experience things. You want to feel comforted. 
And, you know, for me, uh, I think the Bible is full of, of, of examples of people who, you know, cling to, cling to Christ and cling to, cling to God in the midst of really horrible things that are happening to them. And on one level, you, you, you don't really maybe find comfort in their stories, but I, I find comfort in the idea that there's a model for how we can cling to the Lord in those times, how we can cry out to the Lord, how, you know, King David, who, you know, the Bible says was a man after God's own heart, but, but was also this horrible sinner. You know, he was a, an adulterer and a murderer, and he has the audacity and the, and the courage, really, to ask God for a clean heart. And then he asked God to restore his joy. And this is, you know, when people are pursuing him and, and chasing after him to take his life, you know, he even, he even clings to, to the Lord for joy in that. And, you know, as to how that comforts, you know, someone who's, who's grappling with the reality of yesterday, I don't know, but I'm, but I'm glad it's there. And I'm glad, you know, the Bible gives us a, a model for how we're to do that. And I've, I've found, I mean, my experience has been, um, that there's really been no earthly comfort outside of that. And, you know, sometimes we can't explain these things away. We can't, um, you know, God doesn't let us know immediately why it's happening. Um, but, but that feeling of joy and peace, even in the midst of, uh, of life's terrible storms, I mean, that's something that uh, experientially we can we can look to the Lord and just say thank you. There's one thing, though, that tends to kind of complicate this, and after a brief time out, I want to kind of dig deeper. We, we spoke of the, the mental ascent to what we understand to be true from God's perspective, from God's Word. Then there's kind of the emotional struggles that we go, uh, go into, where we, we understand intellectually what's going on, and yet emotionally still there's that sense of disillusionment and fear and doubt and unbelief. The third aspect that kind of complicates this scenario is the big cover-up, and we'll talk about that when we come back after a brief time out. Best-selling author Ted Kluck is with us today, a look at Finding God in the Dark. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We continue our visit with best-selling author Ted Kluck. He, along with co-author Ronnie Martin, have written a new book called Finding God in the Dark. Now, we talked a bit about that sense of giving mental assent to what we know are the realities of what's going on in these kind of circumstances, Ted, and yet oftentimes... uh, being just overwhelmed by emotional senses of of doubt and fear and disillusionment. But then there's kind of the other third item that I think tends to complicate this, and you talk about it in the book. It's something that we evangelicals in particular seem to be very adept at, and that is um, kind of faking our way through pain, you know, painting on the smile and and getting past the greeter at the door at church on Sunday or, you know, uh, giving the obligatory, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? When, in fact, we're really not. And I'm wondering if sometimes that sets up a barrier that really blocks us from the ability to deal with how we're feeling and kind of find the sort of uh, peace and relief that we seek. Yeah, I think it absolutely does, and I think, you know, I wrote about it in the book. I was absolutely guilty of that for so many years, you know. The issues were different for me in that, you know, our our hard times, our dark places, if you will, were infertility, um, a failed adoption, um, some vocation-related failures that I was experiencing, and instead of, you know, being humbled and clinging to the cross and those things, for a lot of years I just got more bitter, you know. 
more bitter, more cynical. Um, but week after week, day after day, you know, Sunday after Sunday, I would go into church and, and, you know, I was, I was everybody's buddy and, and the back slapping lobby guy with a smile for everybody. But inside I was really dying, you know, and I was really struggling with, you know, how do I love a God who, uh, would put me through this quite frankly was, was my thought process. And, um, it was really tough, you know, and, and thankfully the, the same institution that was hard for me in that, the church. Um, it was tough to go to church, and it was tough to see everybody else, I thought, prospering, you know, while I was kind of circling the drain, I thought. But um, it was that same institution that ended up being, you know, such a help and such a comfort for me as the Holy Spirit uh, pursued me out of that. I guess the irony is that a lot of us are often going through this, whether it's the way in which a whole community suffers, such as in the wake of the Boston bombing, or individual families. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job. As you point out in your case, it was an adoption that right on the cusp of, of everything coming together, um, your uh, your little Ukrainian daughter, who who was literally the the, the sister of, of one of your adopted boys, uh, mm-hmm. another couple stepped in and the law did what it did uh, thousands of miles away, and that whole adoption process fell apart. That created a great deal of pain in your life, and I guess maybe the issue oftentimes here is when we're going through pain or fear or doubt or disillusionment, uh, we want to keep up a happy face. You know, nobody typically posts on Facebook what a terrible day that they're having or what an awful meal that they had. They we all tend to kind of want to be uh, happy and, and, and sort of, you know, put on the dog, so to speak, and yet behind that mask oftentimes lurks an awful lot of pain. Yeah, that's so right, man. I, I think oftentimes we're our own best press agents. And, you know, from being in Christian media and Christian entertainment, as I am, you know, there, there is this often kind of creepy, you know, motivation to self-promote. And um, I find I found myself doing a ton of that, you know. Uh, again, on Facebook, my Facebook persona was, you know, I was this happy, successful guy with a great family and, um, you know, all kinds of success and all kinds of exciting things happening. But you know, for anybody who knew me then or or anybody who was close to me then, you know, the opposite was really true. And um, it wasn't until, you know, I heard some convicting preaching. Um, It wasn't until I, you know, I went to some friends of mine in the church, uh, a pastor and an elder, and just said, look, I'm, I'm struggling here. You know, I'm, I'm I'm really dying here. I'm really bitter. And uh, I need your help. You know, um, Thank God, you know, for me that the Holy Spirit pursued me in that way and, uh, and, and kind of led me to do that, because I think even though the circumstances really haven't changed, you know, this book isn't one of those stories where, you know, we pray a couple of times and then we get rich and have a bunch of kids and everything starts going right for us. You know, the, the circumstances are the same, essentially, um, but, but Christ has given me a lot of joy and a lot of peace in the midst of that. So I'm thankful. What's the big takeaway? Um, as both you and Ronnie have shared a lot of personal pain in this book, what are you hoping to be the big takeaway for readers and for our listeners tonight? Yeah, you know what? I think a couple of things. Number one, we can feel so alone in our churches um, when we do struggle and when we are in dark places. And uh, Ronnie and I hope that this book would kind of be the, the friend that we don't have in churches, you know, the the person who's willing to be honest about their own struggles and their own sins and their own you know, dark places. So hopefully it'll be a comfort to people on that level. But um, I think the other takeaway really is just a, a simple presentation of the gospel. You know, that if we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and we acknowledge our sinful hearts and our brokenness, that He'll lift us up, you know, and He'll 
um, he'll redeem us and he'll give us peace and he'll give us, you know, the, the clean hearts and the, and the joy of our salvation that David talks about in Psalm 51. And, you know, I think in, in different ways and in different struggles, um, Ronnie and I have both, uh, experienced that. And we wanted to, you know, to write the book is a really an outpouring of thanks to, uh, to a Lord who would, who would do that for us. You know, a couple of really sinful, screwed up guys. We have a lot of observers right now who they themselves are asking questions who do not currently have a relationship with the Lord. And I know it's easy sometimes to come up with pat answers, but from a sincere standpoint, as as maybe people out there who are not believers are seeking answers and, and asking the why God questions as well, what, what do you tell these people in, in terms of how they can find God in the dark? I think keep asking and keep seeking. And, um, you know, the, the Holy Spirit will find you. You know, I, I think, you know, we serve a Lord who, who finds us and who pursues us and who loves us enough to, you know, to, to, to come after us at times. And, you know, I think if, if people are asking questions, that's a great sign. You know, I don't, think you, I don't think you get anywhere in this life without asking the hard questions. And, you know, again, you know, there's this, there's this weird tension in the Church where you're just so— Sometimes you feel like you're supposed to smile and show up, and um, everything will be great for you. But you know, it really wasn't until Ronnie and I started started asking those hard questions that um, that we got any peace. And um, so I would say, keep asking. I would say, you know, search for truth. I mean, I think we we live in a culture where um, it's very cool and it's very sexy to to be journeying and never arrive anywhere. Um, it's cool to be a seeker, but not a, a, a pursuer of truth. But I would say. You know, seek hard after truth in Scripture and uh, and see how the Lord reveals himself to you. A look at finding God in the dark. Ted Kluck, along with Ronnie Martin, the authors of this new book. And the book, by the way, is recently published by... I've got to get my cheaters on here. Boy, reaching that age, are you, Roberts? Bethany House Publishers. And you can find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it through Ted's website at Ted Kluck, K-L-U-C-K. And our thanks again to Ted Cluck for visiting with us in this segment of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Thank you.